when we you know start to scrutinize carbon capture technology and carbon and those nature-based solutions it's important that we understand the little journey that that carbon atom has had from our atmosphere into something so that we can go yeah okay that is actually sequestered or stored long term and that process is actually having a net impact on our atmospheric carbon levels. CCS, carbon capture, carbon storage, direct air capture, point source capture. There are a lot of terms floating around on the myriad of ways that we can capture carbon dioxide. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we ask what methods can we use to capture carbon dioxide and how exactly does it all work? You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. We need to be able to not only stop letting carbon out into the atmosphere, we actually now are at the point that we need to start pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the ground because it's not enough just to kind of stem the flow. We actually need to start pulling stuff out of the atmosphere to stop that acceleration process. This is Dr Alex Thompson, a marine ecologist at the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS. I work within the UTS Faculty of Science Climate Change Cluster and the broader faculty looking at uh, research engagement and industry engagement. According to an IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, drastically reducing our carbon emissions is not enough. We need to remove the CO2 already in the atmosphere. The report states that carbon dioxide removal is necessary to achieve net zero CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions, both globally and nationally. So how can we capture and remove carbon? Well, the simplest method is, of course, the humble tree. Yeah, so photosynthesis, which is what trees and most plants do to capture carbon and produce oxygen, is the original carbon capture technology. It's kind of this beautifully finessed process where these natural systems are able to capture carbon from our atmosphere and turn it into more plants, more trees, more leaves and produce oxygen off the back of that. So a lot of technologically based solutions really try to replicate that process or industrialise that process. But while trees are the original carbon capture technology, the pure scale of carbon emissions means planting trees alone can't save us. We cannot decarbonise the atmosphere using forestry. There just isn't enough land to plant enough forest to capture enough CO2 and still for us to grow food to feed us. So my name's Peter Ralph. I'm the Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology in Sydney. There's a range of technologies we need to advance rapidly and the challenge is massive. But it's not as if the technology doesn't exist. You know, a few years ago, I think that was the problem, that we were, we were banking on non-existent technologies. The technologies exist, they need to be scaled rapidly, invested rapidly, and we will have those answers quickly. There are a few types of technologies and methods to remove carbon. Some remove carbon from the atmosphere, others directly from the polluting source. 
Professor Peter Ralph will help us unpack these concepts. Firstly, DAC, direct air capture. So direct air capture has to remove atmospheric carbon from the atmosphere. It has to bind to something. It's either going to bind to a chemical or bind to biology. For this to work, engineers use a fan that draws air in through a filter drenched in chemicals. So we can use chemistry, we can use sodium hydroxides, we can use um, amines. These are chemicals that bind to the CO2. We've got to heat them up, pressurise the CO2 to take it out of the chemistry. There's some very clever structures, which are called MOFs, metal organic frameworks, which are nanostructures that kind of are like a net that captures the the molecule of the CO2. Same thing, heat them, chill them, pressurise them to get the CO2 off them off. Next up, we have point source capture. This is where we go directly to the source. Directly to the polluting source. The advantage to this method is if we collect carbon from, say, an oil or gas company, it means the carbon will be highly concentrated compared to direct air capture. So we've got concentrated sources and dilute sources. So direct air capture is capturing CO2 from a dilute source, so it's a little bit harder and a little bit more expensive, whereas capturing CO2 from a flue gas, from a power plant, exhaust gas, from a cement manufacturer, from a brewery, is very much easier because the CO2 is concentrated. But then you've got to get your chemistry and your biology to be able to work at high levels of CO2, not normal atmospheric levels of CO2. Earlier, Peter mentioned that carbon can bind to chemicals or biology. So what are the biological examples? This is where Dr. Alex Thompson comes in to discuss her favourite topic, algae. Yeah, my name in every group chat is Alex Algae. (laughs) Or just algae. (laughs) Algae is a photosynthetic plant which mostly grows in the water. When you think of algae, you might picture seaweed or kelp, which is a macroalgae. Microalgae, on the other hand, is very small microscopic organisms, and they play a key role in storing carbon. Microalgae have been something that has been around for a really long time, capturing carbon, producing oxygen, and optimising that process for billions of years. So for scientists, it presents a really great opportunity because here you have this tiny little organism that has finessed carbon capture down to a T, does it really, really quickly. UTS research estimates that microalgae is 40 times more efficient than trees at removing carbon from the atmosphere. Although Alex adds, some people say that's a conservative number. So microalgae are actually responsible for half, and some people will argue more, (laughs) of all of the carbon capture and oxygen production on the planet. So if we're thinking about how important these systems are, they're critically important in just maintaining our planet's natural equilibrium with regards to capturing that carbon from the atmosphere and actually producing enough oxygen for all life on Earth to live. And microalgae can also be used to create products. We can actually take what the microalgae makes. So within its cells, there's some really important 
oils, proteins, and carbohydrates. Um, in fact, you know, if we're thinking about fossil fuels, the stuff we do out of the ground to make plastics and stuff out of, that is just microalgae that's billions of years old. So if we stop digging out of the ground, start growing it on the surface, capturing carbon in the process, it presents a really great scientific innovation that we can capture carbon and start making products off the end of it and stop taking stuff out of the ground. So it kind of presents that twofold. It's carbon capture, but also we're stopping taking stuff out of the ground as well, stopping that production of carbon through that process. And so researchers and scientists are incredibly interested in how can we actually leverage this to further optimise carbon capture and start making some really innovative products that we would ordinarily have to make out of fossil fuels. Microalgae is a natural carbon sink, meaning it stores carbon from the atmosphere. Some other natural carbon sinks include wetlands, forests, soil and oceans. So when discussing the role of microalgae, Alex points to the importance of conservation. As we see those systems decline through lack of conservation or through clearing and through you know, other destructive practices, that does actually degrade how our planet is able to capture carbon. So it's really important that we look after those systems and recognise the magnitude at which they are capturing carbon for us. So we've captured the carbon, either naturally or artificially. What now? Well, we can either store it, carbon capture storage, or we can repurpose that carbon. One method is to store the carbon underground in a process called sequestration. UTS professor Peter Ralph explains. So what they have to do is they have to pressurise it and then they have to inject it underground. They have to then find rock substrates that both cap it and bind to it. So it's, there's a fair bit of geology involved in selecting the right places that we can store it so that we don't just simply inject the CO2 down the, the mine shaft and then it warms up and it's back in the atmosphere again. So there is a risk that it, in the wrong f geological structures, it may come back. So we have to be careful. Another method is to recycle or reuse the carbon. Peter explains that there are different methods to repurposing that stored carbon. There's two ways of describing it. It's called direct use or conversion. So if you capture the carbon as CO2 and you directly use it, you've got to use it as CO2. So you can, you can use it in soda water, you can use it in beer. It's, you, know, you catch the CO2 and you use the CO2, whereas conversion on the other hand, takes the carbon dioxide and turns it into oils, proteins, sugars, and these products can then be turned into other things. So conversion is more flexible. Direct use is probably easier. And then once you've captured that carbon, as you mentioned before, it can be reused or recycled. What can we reuse that carbon for? So the, the opportunities with reusing the carbon are immense. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the work we're doing at UTS is, is trying to put value on it. So the, the lowest products, the commodities, are where we take the carbon and we turn it into a, a biofuel or a biochar. Biochar is charcoal created from heating up biomass material, like plant material or manure, which improves soil health and improves soil's ability to store carbon. 
Now, the biofuels, if we turn it into a biofuel, the CO2 is back in the atmosphere once it's combusted, whereas a biochar or carbon farming, that carbon is in the soil, and in principle, it's there for decades, millennia. So that's a really good way to get rid of it, but it's not changing society. So the the thing that we've got is we've got a society where we've got carpets. This, this, this studio, the wall panels are all plastic-based. Um, our houses, we have plastic laminate desks. We have um, all kinds of structures that can store carbon. And so that's where we should be storing it. So the construction industry is, is over half of the, uh, the contribution of the CO2. So we can stick it back into the buildings. The buildings hold that carbon for decades, provided we don't knock the buildings down. This is what we should be doing. So we should be making products, high value products, out of the atmospheric carbon. So the emphasis is then on seeing carbon as a resource. The vernacular at the moment is everyone wants to decarbonize. And and I think it's a great brand name for what we need to do, but it's demonizing carbon. And the the term that I'd see as more accurate is defossilizing what we're doing because we need to stop using fossil sources of carbon and natural sources of carbon are essential to, to life and and we can make it sustainable products. So I think this is the really exciting thing is, is getting rid of all of the fossil sources of carbon and using the massive amounts of liberated carbon that we've put into the atmosphere and turning that into stuff that we need because our society is based on, you know, we've been using plastics for 100 years. We can still make plastics out of atmospheric carbon and use those. They can be biodegradable. They can be permanent plastics. We can make all kinds of products out of atmospheric carbon. So it's we've got to defossilize our industries, not necessarily decarbonize them. So we've spoken about a few methods to capture carbon and how it can be stored or reused. However, there is one conflicting way carbon can be reused. Ironically, some of the biggest investors of these technologies seem to be big oil and gas companies. While it may reduce their carbon emissions, there's one other consequence to storing high-pressure carbon underground in existing oil and gas reservoirs it actually makes it easier to extract more oil. The term is called enhanced oil recovery. Professor Peter Ralph explains that he actually avoids using the term carbon capture and storage because of this. So the problem with carbon capture and storage has been that it's been completely linked to the petrochemical industry. There's another term called EOR, enhanced oil recovery. And what carbon capture and storage has been shanghaied as a technology has become carbon capture for the purpose of enhanced oil recovery. So the term that I prefer to use is CCU or CCM. So that's carbon capture and use or carbon capture and manufacture. And I think the last one, CCM, makes a lot more sense because people get it that we're capturing atmospheric carbon and we're making stuff with it. 
So how do we incentivize companies to not use carbon capture technology to mine more oil out? It's a very, very simple answer, a carbon tax. So whether we have cap and trade systems, whether we have a price on carbon, Europe already is going to implement the carbon border adjustment mechanism in brackets tax. So we're going to be in a position where any product that is carbon intensive in its production, so it's using a fossil source of electricity or energy to make it, is going to become more expensive. So it's going to incentivize nations to change their manufacturing systems to be using sustainable sources of energy, but also sustainable sources of product. And so the cheaper the carbon uh, intensity in the product, the better the market opportunity for it. So we're going to see a change very, very rapidly. I mean, I would love to see a world where people are rewarded for capturing carbon and for lowering their footprint rather than punished for emitting. But I know there probably has to be some type of mixture of both for this thing to actually work and be adopted appropriately. I think there maybe needs to be a little bit of work done before we get to the point that um, either carbon taxes or carbon credits are feasible and are implementable across Australia with all industries. I think we need to make some of that technology more accessible. Um, to all different types of businesses so they can tap into that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's unfortunately when you come to the environment, um, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, the dollar, the dollar sign is the biggest driver rather than, um, you know, their ethical dilemma of, of carbon emittance. So I think some mixture of reward, accessibility, something needs to happen for things to really sort of take off. Often, one of the barriers to carbon capture technology is supposedly operational cost. A potential solution is for multinational companies to bear the burden of the initial operational costs, supercharging the market and opening it up to smaller companies. It's not just big oil that's able to invest in this technology. And I think this is where we've seen... Microsoft and Shopify investing in Climeworks. So Climeworks is the Icelandic um, direct air capture system. And in the literature, the price of a, a tonne of carbon is still running between $600 to $1,200 a tonne. So now that's, ex you know, that's expensive, but these companies are prepared to support that level of technology. So it's not just big oil that can afford it. I think it's really great to see global leadership from the multinationals that they're prepared to invest in tech, early adopters of technology to fast track us to the solution. In April 2022, Stripe, an online payments company, banded together with big names such as Alphabet, Meta, Shopify and McKinsey to create Frontier. Frontier's purpose is to accelerate the development of carbon removal technologies by guaranteeing future demand of them. They do this by collecting funding from governments and companies who need to fulfil their net zero targets, assessing the solutions, and then pay the suppliers of these solutions, which primarily will be carbon capture companies. 
And I think there's a lot of businesses that say, you know, what difference am I as one business going to make? But really all it takes is one business or one person to start that waterfall, um, you know, and then a whole industry will follow. Dr. Alex Thompson works as the Industry Engagement Manager at the University of Technology Sydney's Climate Change Cluster. She believes a trusting relationship is needed between researchers and small businesses so they can take that step to adopting sustainable practices. So it's really important that we kind of work with those people that are incredibly trusting of us as researchers and scientists, but also really wanting to collaborate with us to find the best solution. And as we've seen in a number of different occasions, quite often when they adopt something, then they get a whole slew of inquiries of people saying, we really want to do the same thing that you guys did because it's so incredibly important. And realistically, if businesses and people aren't adopting this type of technology, there ain't going to be any businesses or people left. <laughs> so it's kind of a, you know, it's a big step and it's overwhelming but you know realistically we need to be doing this stuff because we don't really have a choice. And one of the criticisms for carbon capture technology um, is this idea that it's used as a license to pollute and it's prolonging the lifespan of these power plants. What, what's your take on that view? So I think there's there's kind of two different ways that we treat carbon capture, right? If you have an industry or a plant or something that is producing carbon dioxide, stopping that carbon dioxide from going to the atmosphere can be done through carbon capture. But essentially, that's just a zero waste kind of system, right? You're just kind of emitting more, capturing more, hopefully capturing it for as long for a long time, so it's sequestered, not just a little bit of time. But hopefully, that then creates a bit of a a, a zero a net zero without saying net zero, <laughs> you're not actually putting more in that you're getting out. But then there's also carbon capture technology that needs to be implemented that is just making a dent on what is already in the atmosphere. So yeah, there is a bit of a disparity, right? If you are a business or an industry or a plant or something that is pumping a bunch of CO2 into the atmosphere, but you're sort of saying, we're all good because we capture it back out again, that's not really making an overall dent on climate or atmospheric CO2 levels. That's just kind of capturing what you're putting out there. And realistically, it's probably never going to be quite as efficient as how much is actually going out there in the first place. So reducing net overall carbon emissions needs to go hand in hand with that carbon te capture technology because otherwise we're not going to make a dent and climate change is still going to keep barreling forward. So I, yeah, in some instances, yes, can be used as a bit of a, a Band-Aid for kind of industries that do put out a bunch of CO2. Um, and that's why I think marrying the two together is, is what is really, really needed. And the IPCC has estimated that we need to remove 10 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year. Do you think this is achievable within the current trajectory? The current technologies need to be rapidly ramped up and scaled. And I think this is one of the challenges is that We've got a number of technologies out there and whether they're scalable and whether we can invest rapidly enough in getting to scale is yet to be clear. But I think there's sufficient interest in the technologies. We're developing one of those types of technologies and there is massive, massive interest in it. So, so I think all things being equal, 
the technologies will be available, the investment will be available. There will be a carbon tax, and the the cost of carbon removal from the atmosphere will assist the the wide-scale deployment. And I want to get to a point where we see carbon as a resource, not as a pollutant. Um, it's in the atmosphere. We can use that carbon to make stuff and make money out of it. Alex argues that the technology needs to happen as rapidly as humanly possible. And she points to the speed at which the COVID-19 vaccines were developed. As we've kind of seen when we get big things of, of human need like COVID, R&D can be pushed forward and accelerate at rates to address those needs really, really rapidly. R&D, research and development. You know, we saw a COVID vaccine being developed really rapidly. Carbon capture technology needs to move and be adopted at a pace to be able to sort of make an impact. We are seeing that happen. You know, more and more businesses are adopting this stuff, bigger industries, there's more incentives. Um, but, you know, it needs to happen more. And for New South Wales and Australia to reach 2050, um, 2050 targets of net zero, you know, I, I hope we can get there, but I think it is going to be a lot of technologies, a lot of resources needed to really achieve it. I'd love to see it by 2030 because I think we need we need it to happen sooner because realistically we don't know what the planet's going to look like by 2050 if, if we don't meet it. The inevitable next question is, will the carbon capture technology be ready in time to meet 2050 goals? I suppose that that's talking more about the actual sequestration man-made technology, not necessarily coupling it with like algae biotechnology. But is that a fair argument that there's a concern it won't be ready in time? I don't think I can sort of speak to the technological solutions because I don't know a huge amount about them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's always a concern when you kind of come up against we're relying solely on this one technology to save our entire planet. Of course, that's kind of a risky thing to take. Um, and I think, you know, if we're to kind of look at all different types of solutions to capturing carbon, then that's probably where where we're going to find, you know, makes be the biggest impact if we start to go, okay, so we need to look at, at spaces where we've maybe done some land clearing and think about how can we implement some nature-based solutions here, look at our coastal systems and say, hey, how can we start regrowing some mangroves and things here to start reinstating these systems? Um, and then look at that kind of middle ground of how can we use things like algae, seaweeds, that sort of stuff in industrialised processes to start capturing carbon um, alongside, you know, some of those manufacturing or production processes to capture on site. And then those kind of extreme technological examples, I think if we start to see those implemented, then we might, you know, it starts to de-risk a little bit and you start to go, all right, maybe this is actually achievable. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.